Good morning, Apostles family. Man, what a different world we are living in this morning as we gather in our own living rooms with our family than the world we were living in even just a week ago. Everyone is having to make radical life changes right now, and of course, we as a church are having to adjust as well. For example, both Ryan and I had to trim our beards this week because, as you know, the camera adds 10 pounds. The leadership team here at Apostles is praying that the resources that we provide each week bring encouragement, a level of normalcy to each of your lives that are right now anything but normal. Now, I'm not sure how you woke up this morning, how you feel today uh, as you're starting this brand new day, but I just want to encourage all of us by reminding you of the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an amazing promise. Well, before we get into God's word, I've got just three quick announcements that I want to give to you today. Uh, Number one is that obviously in light of the stay and shelter order that Governor Newsom has given to us, all gatherings, physical gatherings of our church are going to be postponed indefinitely until we hear something different. We're considering, though, options to still try to connect our community groups uh, over video. And so we're looking into some options to do that, and we'll definitely update you uh, as soon as we have the details related to that. A second announcement is related to giving. Um, People are probably wondering how can we continue to give to the church like we would normally do right now. And the easiest option is, of course, online giving. And you can give securely to Apostles Church online, which I think roughly half our church gives this way already anyways. But if you're not comfortable giving online, we want to let you know that you can just mail a check to the church. The address here is 4485 Hollister Avenue, Santa Barbara, 93110. So that's an easy way to continue giving as well. Finally, many in our church family have already asked either myself or Pastor Ryan if there are any others in the church who are in need right now. And what's so cool about that is that Uh, We have brothers and sisters in Christ here in our church who want to serve each other, who want to take care of each other's needs. And so um, some needs have already been getting met through other members in the church. But if you have any needs, whether they're financial, whether you need somebody to go get groceries for you or anything else, please do not hesitate to reach out to us and we would love to help serve you during this challenging time. Well, last week we paused in our sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we did that to consider Paul's command in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, where Paul tells us, do not be anxious about anything. And we learned last week that um, God does not allow difficult circumstances to come into our lives to make us anxious. Rather, God God allows these things to come into our lives to make us prayerful. And so our response to all that's going on in our lives right now is that we should be a people of prayer. And so we want to continue to encourage you to be people of prayer. But because of our desire to bring a level of normalcy back to our church family, we've decided this week to resume our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so I want to encourage you now to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and then we'll pray and get into today's teaching. Ecclesiastes seven fifteen through 29. 
In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful that right now at this moment, you are seated on your throne. We're so thankful that even though so many people in our world, even people that we often look to for strength and guidance and wisdom, so many of them are even panicked right now and confused. We're so thankful, Lord, that nothing that is going on in our world has taken you by surprise. We're thankful that you are seated on your throne, ruling and reigning over all things. And Lord, we're thankful that you even take bad things, destructive things, and in the midst of those circumstances, you still work things out toward good and holy ends. And so, Lord, we give you praise this morning. We honor you. We worship you as our good and sovereign king. And Lord, I just pray that as we sit together and consider Ecclesiastes chapter 7, even though the situation has changed and We're not physically together in this moment. Lord, we pray that you would continue to edify this local church, Apostles Church, that you would continue to build us up in our most holy faith. Father, we pray that you would give us insight and understanding in your word. And that, Lord, the truths that we uncover in this passage would stir our affections for Jesus and would continue to transform us into the men and women that you've called us to be. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, by way of reminder, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon has invited us into his personal quest to find the meaning of life. And he is looking everywhere and drawing observations from all that he sees. In chapter 1, verse 13, he explains it this way. He says, And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. In other words, he's leaving no stone unturned, He's leaving no book unopened. He's trying to find the meaning in the madness. And he's considered all sorts of different topics and themes. He's considered wisdom and pleasure and work 
and time and death, injustice and oppression, even religion and money. But in chapter 7, Solomon sort of shifted a little bit to begin offering us a way forward in life. He's trying to help us to navigate through life and its complexities and its confusion. He's trying to help us to walk on the path of wisdom, but he knows that there are many opportunities for us to veer off into folly. Now, we titled the sermon for the first half of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Wisdom versus Folly, round one. So today, the title of the sermon is Wisdom versus Folly, round two. And the first thing that we see here in verses 15 through 18 is the limitations of wisdom. The limitations of wisdom. Now, the scriptures, as many of you know, consistently encourage us to be people who pursue wisdom. That we should be seeking after wisdom, we should desire it really above almost anything else. And so what's so interesting, and to be honest with you, quite unsettling about Ecclesiastes, is that Solomon often seems to deviate from that perspective. As we'll see, it's not that he disagrees with that perspective, somehow suggesting to us that wisdom is bad or undesirable. It's that his attitude is sort of like, yeah, but. Yeah, sure, wisdom does have its advantages. Yes, wisdom is valuable. Wisdom should be pursued, but it has its limitations. There are exceptions to the rules, if you will. As I've said before, whereas Proverbs deals with life as it should be, the book of Ecclesiastes deals with life as it actually is, life under the sun. Solomon in this book is constantly exploring the exceptions to the rules. He begins here by saying that he has seen something. In all of his observations, Solomon sees the righteous perish and the wicked prosper. And for Solomon, just like for you and just like for me, that doesn't add up. That's not the way that life is supposed to be. What do you mean the righteous are going to perish and the wicked are going to prosper? In Deuteronomy chapter 4, as God was giving his law uh, to his people, the Israelites, through his servant Moses, Moses says this, this is Deuteronomy 4 verse 40, Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So God is saying there, listen, if you obey me, you'll be blessed, you'll prosper, you'll find success. But if you disobey me, then life's not going to work out for you well. And we see this kind of idea um, repeated all over in scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. Um, consider Psalm chapter 1. There we read that the blessed man or the blessed woman is essentially the righteous person. It's the person who avoids the counsel of the wicked and doesn't interact with or follow after the patterns of the sinful. That's the blessed person. And Psalm 1 goes on to say that it's the wicked person whose life comes to ruin. It's the wicked person who is like the chaff that the wind drives away. That's the way that the world is supposed to work. The righteous should prosper. The wicked are the ones who perish. But Solomon has seen in his observations that this is not the way it always works out. Now Solomon does believe in the retribution principle. 
Uh, Simply put, the retribution principle would be that you reap whatever you sow. This is how he puts it in chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Now, most of you have heard now about the two brothers in Tennessee who stockpiled some 18,000 bottles of hand sanitizer. And then, of course, they went on Amazon and they started selling off these bottles to try to make a profit. And some of these bottles of hand sanitizer were going for a price tag of $70 a bottle. But thankfully, Amazon caught wind of this and understood what they were doing and they removed their listings and would not allow them to still sell their products. And so these brothers were left with 17,700 bottles of useless hand sanitizer. And that makes me so happy to hear that. I'm so glad that that's how that worked out for them. Don't judge me just because I'm a pastor. I know you feel that way too. Now, if we could just figure out who it was that stockpiled 18,000 packages of toilet paper. I'd be really happy about that. So they got busted. But guess what? Sometimes people do things like that. Price gouging people during a national emergency and they get away with it. And sometimes people get away with terribly worse things than that. Sometimes in this life, life under the sun, the wicked prosper and the righteous perish perish. Sometimes in the life that you and I are living, the wicked are taking advantage of people, they're abusing people, they're oppressing people, they're stepping all over people, and the way it works out for them in the here and now is that they're living in the lap of luxury. That's the reality of life. So in the here and now, the retribution principle is, we could say, generally true. People do more often than not reap what they sow, But sometimes there's exceptions. And that means that sometimes you have to wait until eternity for it to play out. So Solomon is not dismissing the path of wisdom. He's not saying that that's a bad path or the wrong path. In fact, he's going to continue to remind us that it's the best path. But he wants to make sure that you understand that just because you choose the path of wisdom, just because you choose to live a righteous life, that is no guarantee that you're going to have success. That's no guarantee that everything's going to work out perfectly for you. It's not an automatic thing on this side of eternity. So there are limits to wisdom as we live our lives under the sun. It's valuable, but it's limited. In light of this, Solomon is now going to offer us some counsel, and I'll admit, at first reading, it is quite confusing. It's in verses 16 and 17. He says, Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Now, some commentators see this as a cynical, kind of just throw your hands up in the air, frustrated response to what Solomon, or as he describes himself, the preacher, has seen. They take this as, look, if the righteous are not guaranteed that they're going to prosper anyway, and if the wicked sometimes do prosper in their wickedness, then what's the point of trying to do everything right? You might as well just kind of take a middle-of-the-road approach to life and avoid either 
extreme. Now that view, in my opinion, is not consistent with the tone of Ecclesiastes, and it's certainly not consistent with the tone and the teaching of the rest of Scripture. So what is Solomon saying here? Is he saying to us, look, don't be too godly, don't be too wise, or even worse, you know, a little bit of wickedness is okay, just don't get carried away with it. Well, I mean, we have to ask ourselves, is it even possible to be too godly? Is it, too, is it even possible to live a, right, uh, a life that is too righteous? Of course not. Didn't Jesus teach us that the great commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Jesus seems to suggest there, or command there rather, that we are supposed to be all in in our devotion for the Lord. We should be pursuing holiness even as he himself is holy. God wants us to be as godly as we possibly can and to seek to live righteous lives. So that can't be what he's saying. Other commentators see Solomon here warning against self-righteousness. The verb form in verse 16 may refer to someone who is only pretending to be righteous. And so Solomon would be saying, look, don't put on this front that you're a righteous person. Don't live a self-righteous life because if you do, if that's the way that you choose to live your life, it's going to actually, actually lead to destruction. But the problem with this view is that if we understand the verb that way regarding the righteous person, then to be consistent, we'd have to understand it that way regarding the wicked person too. And no commentator or Bible interpreter would suggest that Solomon is warning people against pretending to be wicked. Nobody pretends to be wicked. Let me offer a third way of understanding the text for us. It seems that what Solomon is doing here in verses 16 and 17 is that he's reinforcing the idea that he communicated in verse 15, the point that he just made, namely that playing by the rules is no guarantee. See, the Jews believed that our success, or you could use the word our prosperity, was directly related to our obedience, like I pointed out a minute ago from Deuteronomy 440, for example. Incidentally, this is the same thing that many prosperity teachers say today, that if things go wrong in your life, if you get sick or you're poor or some other misfortune falls on you, well, guess what the problem is? You're living in sin. And the Jews, again, believe that if you lived a right life, you would be blessed. You would be a person who prospered in the here and now. So for a person like that, they might be tempted to hear Solomon talking about the righteous person who perished and say, well, maybe that person just wasn't righteous enough. Maybe they weren't living with perfect wisdom or living right enough. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to double down my efforts. To that sort of thinking, Solomon wants to say, look, you need to understand that that path, being overly righteous or overly wise, will lead you to destroy yourself. Now, in what sense does he mean it'll lead you to destruction? Well, the word there translated destroy can also be translated to be appalled or to be astonished. And it seems to me that Solomon's thinking is, look, if you are the person who's convinced that if you can just live a righteous life and you can do everything right, you can cross all your T's, you can dot all your I's, that God is going to automatically bless you, if that doesn't happen for you, it's going to leave you utterly confounded. 
And it's probably going to leave you with a crisis of faith where you're going, what is wrong? Is God against me? Does he not love me? And it'll absolutely destroy your faith. On the other hand, though, Solomon does not want you to say the heck with it either. Because living a life of reckless sinfulness is a surefire way to wreck your life. Many people, and perhaps even some of you at different points in your own life, have disregarded God's commands, have said, you know what, I I don't really care about God's guidelines. I'm going to do it my own way. And the result of that has been that you have made a mess out of so many different things in your life. In fact, for the person who pursues folly and wickedness recklessly, it could, in fact, even shorten their life, of course. So instead of either extreme, Solomon commends us to hold on to this teaching and to fear God. Or to put it differently, to trust in the Lord in the day of prosperity and to trust in the Lord in the days of adversity, which he explained to us back in verse 14, both come from the hand of God. If we can live that way, if we can be people who fear the Lord, who seek to obey him and just entrust our lives to him, we will do well. Of course, family, you know that we have a perfect example of this in the Lord Jesus himself. Never has there been a more righteous person. Of course, Jesus was sinless. Never once did he break God's commands. And yet Jesus was cut down and executed in the prime of his life. He, he suffered and he perished in his righteousness. But through all of it, And this is so instructive for us. He entrusted himself to God and it was well with him. Consider 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 21 through 23. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What a fitting word for us as we try to navigate through, again, these exceptions in our lives. Again, normally you reap what you sow in the here and now, but there are times that that doesn't work out. There are times that even when you try to do things right, even when you're trying to be a godly person in the workplace, the other person gets the promotion, or you get fired, or you get falsely accused, and How do we respond to that? We continue to entrust ourselves to our God who we know judges justly. Well, now that Solomon has relativized wisdom and its value to some degree, he wants to pause to once again reaffirm its value, and he does so in verse 19. He writes, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Now, most cities, as you know, have, at least in the ancient world, had one ruler. That was the person who was responsible to guide and govern the city and also responsible to protect the city. And Solomon here uh, creates this hypothetical. Imagine a city that had 10 rulers in it and presumably their armies as well. And he says, look, you want to know how important wisdom is? Do you want to know how valuable wisdom is? Wisdom makes the man who possesses it stronger than a city that has 10 rulers inside of it. So Solomon, again, is is wanting to 
help us to understand that he's not devaluing wisdom or diminishing the role that wisdom has in our lives. In fact, Solomon was, of course, a wisdom teacher in Israel. And we need to pursue wisdom. But again, Solomon wants us to know that wisdom has limits. And it's to that theme that he returns as we continue in verses 20 through 24. In these verses, and this is sort of our second point here today, we, we now see the limitations of wisdom continued. Let's read, starting in verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have, have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? There are two reasons in these verses that wisdom is limited in its value for us in the here and now. The first one is found in verses 20 through 22, and it's pretty obvious there. It's this point that no one lives rightly all the time. Nobody. Every one of us sins. Every one of us falls short of God's standards. None of us live with perfect righteousness or, to put it differently, none of us live with perfect wisdom every day in our lives. So you need to understand that wisdom and righteousness are closely related. Righteousness in this context simply means the ability to live rightly. So the righteous person is the person who lives rightly. Wisdom is knowing the right way to live. Again, righteousness is the ability to live rightly. Wisdom is knowing the right way to live. So you could say that it's a wise person who lives rightly, and the person who lives rightly is a wise person. Wisdom, then, is limited because there is no one who lives rightly all the time. And, in fact, that's what he says directly in verse 20. There's no one who does this perfectly all the time. There's no one who doesn't sin. And then in verses 21 and 22, he's going to give a specific example of hearing someone cursing you. And then he says, listen, you know you've done the same yourself. So you see somebody else sinning or you overhear somebody else sinning and Solomon saying, look, you are guilty of the same sorts of things. So none of us are able to live with perfect wisdom because none of us are righteous. Wisdom is limited in its ability to bring prosperity in our lives. The second reason, though, in verses 23 and 24 is this. No one has complete understanding. No one can plumb the depths of all that there is to understand about this world and about life and about God. Nobody. We all lack understanding. We all lack wisdom. And Solomon confesses that himself. He says, I've tested all of this by wisdom. And I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. He says, that which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? This is so fascinating. Solomon announced in Ecclesiastes that he was on a mission to pursue wisdom. He was going to understand everything. He was going to uncover the meaning of life. 
And yet Solomon is admitting that even though he used wisdom to investigate the world, he himself could not become wise, at least in the sense of having everything figured out. He could not understand all of what God was doing in the world. Here's how he puts it in verse 17 of chapter 8. Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. We're limited in what we can understand in this life. So to summarize these first two points, again, wisdom has a place, but wisdom also has limitations, and it can only get us so far in life. At the end of the day, the important thing is for us to trust the Lord, or as Solomon puts it here, to fear God in our lives. Well, in verses 25 through 28, Solomon now is going to pause from talking about wisdom, and he's going to look at its counterpart. He's going to talk about folly, and he's going to offer us a warning against folly. Let's pick up in verse 25. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. So once again, Solomon returns to his quest for wisdom, but here he specifically says he's trying to understand the nature of folly and wickedness. Now, this is a troubling passage for interpreters, rather, because of the statement in verse 28, which appears to be a swipe at women. And there are many different interpretations on this passage, and there's no clear consensus. So I'm suggesting this morning that we should just skip it. I'm just kidding. Relax. You don't have to throw the remote at the TV. We're going to get into it because I believe, just as you do, that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So let's see what we can do with this troubling passage. At face value, Solomon is warning against the seductress. And he says, look, the godly escape her, but the ungodly are taken captive by her. As I mentioned, the confusion comes from verse 28. Now, the language here is really confusing. I mean, just try to follow his argument. He says in verse Verses 27 and 28, he goes, here's what I found, that I didn't find what I was looking for. Here's what I found, though, one man in a thousand, but a woman I did not find. Huh? This is so confusing, it's hard to know what he's saying. Added to that, that Solomon doesn't exactly tell us what kind of man he found in verse 28, or what kind of woman he was unable to find. But we probably, from the context, should assume that He's, he's implying that he was able to only find one in a thousand men who were wise or who were upright and was unable to find a woman that was wise or upright. So the question then becomes, is that what he's suggesting? Is he suggesting that men are slightly more righteous or slightly more wise than women? 
don't worry, that's not going to be a discussion question for you to argue with your spouse, spouse about after this teaching. The short answer, though, is no, that's not what he's saying. One way that some commentators have, have handled this text is to say that Solomon here isn't talking about women literally at all. If you were to turn over to Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, in those nine chapters, Solomon uh, personifies wisdom and folly as a female. Here's Proverbs 1, verses 20 through 22. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? So there we see lady wisdom, if you will. It's wisdom being personified as a woman. Then in chapter 9, verses 13 through 18, we see folly being personified as a woman. Here's verse 13 of chapter 9. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. So according to this view, folly is the thing that is more bitter than death in verse 26. And wisdom is the thing that was hard to come by in verse 28. Another suggestion for this text goes like this. The way that the ESV and many other translations translate verse 28 is to have the first part of the verse end with a period. This makes what follows read like he found one man among a thousand, but no woman could be found. But some commentators suggest that there's another way to translate that first half of verse 28. Instead of having a period there, they suggest that it's proper that you could also put a colon there in its place, which would then change the reading of the second half of the verse. It would make make the first half read like this, what my soul has always sought without finding is, and then a colon. In other words, he would be saying, what I've sought but I was unable to find is what I'm about to say to you. The entire clause or the entire proposition that he then makes about a man and a woman having distinctions or being different, that there is a righteous man, but he couldn't find a righteous or a wise woman. In other words, the thing that Solomon has not found after seeking it is that there is any distinction between men and women regarding wisdom and folly or integrity. A third and final option that I would give to you this morning is this. The adulterous woman or the seductress is something of the quintessential folly in the wisdom literature. Constantly, uh, God's children are warned against adultery and following after a seductress. As Solomon here is considering folly and considering evil and he's investigating these things, he uses this, again, kind of quintessential example to warn against folly in verse 26. He warns then that the seductive woman will catch you like a hunter catches their prey and she'll bring you down to destruction. This is very consistent language with the, with the warning that is found in Proverbs chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Over there, Solomon writes, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. So 
with this view, this first thing in verse 26 would be pretty straightforward, pretty standard teaching. It's a warning against the seductress. But now to the tricky part. Notice that he's not being literal with the statement about men. He's not saying that you will literally find one wise man for every thousand people. You'll never find two men that are wise in a group of a thousand. It's always one for a thousand. Of course, that's not what he's saying. He's not being literal. And so we probably shouldn't then take his statement about women as being literal either, that there are no wise women on planet earth. There's never been a righteous woman. Rather, we need to understand that Solomon is writing in the tradition wisdom liter- in the tradition of wisdom literature, first to his son, we see that in Ecclesiastes 12:12, 12, 12, but then by extension to all the sons of Israel. And in verse 27, he says, "Behold, this is what I found," reminding us that this is his own experiential knowledge. And what is it that Solomon had learned through his own experiences? Well, Solomon had found, or had discovered rather, that finding a righteous or a wise person was like trying to find a needle in a haystack. It's one in a thousand, if you will. As far as women are concerned, his experience with them, well, women have been his downfall. See, for Solomon, instead of choosing to do things God's way and marrying a singular godly woman who would be a blessing to him, He married women who led him away from God and into great personal harm. And there are many women like that, and many men that way too, by the way. Reminds me of the story about a woman who went to the doctors with her husband. After his checkup, the doctor called the wife into his office alone. He said, look, your husband is suffering from a very serious stress disorder. If you don't follow my instructions carefully, your husband will surely die. Each morning, fix him a healthy breakfast. Be pleasant at all times. For lunch, make him a nutritious meal. For dinner, prepare an especially nice meal for him. Don't burden him with chores. Don't discuss your problems with him. It'll only make his stress worse. Do not nag him. And if you can do this for the next 10 months to a year, I think your husband will regain his health completely. So on the way home, the husband says to his wife, what did the doctor say to you? The wife replied, He said, you're going to die. For Solomon, ungodly women were his downfall. So he's warning the sons of Israel to beware of that kind of woman too. As far as women are concerned in general, Solomon knew that there were virtuous and godly women. Here's what he writes in Proverbs 12, 4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. In Proverbs 18.22, he famously writes, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Also, as I already mentioned, in Proverbs 1 through 9, Solomon there personifies wisdom as a woman. However, we understand verse 28. Verse 29 makes it crystal clear that Solomon did not view women as spiritually or morally inferior. This brings us to our fourth movement in the text and our final one, and it is the source of folly found in verse 29. Solomon concludes this teaching here. He says, see this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Clearly, Solomon's point in verses 25 through 28 is not misogyny or sexism. 
Otherwise, verse 29 would be pretty anticlimactic. Rather, his point is that all people, men and women alike, were made upright. We were created good by a good God, but we are the ones who have sought out many schemes. This verse brings us directly back to the creation account found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. There we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Men and women, again, were made upright. Men and women are created in the image of God. We are his image bearers. When we were first created, when our first parents were created, they were in right relationship with God, right relationship with each other, and they were in right relationship with all of creation. But from the fall, starting in Genesis chapter 3 onward, we have been schemers embracing folly and rejecting God's wisdom. In fact, you get only six chapters into the Bible, and you're in the days of Noah. And here's what we see recorded in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Apostle Paul echoes something similar in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. He says, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Therefore, what we as humans need is not moral reform. What we need is a fundamental transformation at the level of our nature. We've taken our good nature that was given to us by a good God, and we've corrupted it so that we scheme and manipulate in evil and destructive ways. So, only if God intervenes, healing our broken nature, can we be restored. And incidentally, this is exactly what God promised would happen to his people under the new covenant. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God talks about this new covenant, promising it to his people. Beginning in verse 31, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of, G of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What an amazing promise of a future day where God's people would have their sins completely forgiven and where God's law would actually be written on our hearts and we would obey him and know him from the core of our being. And this is exactly what has happened to those of us who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Christ, we see the resolution of our fundamental problem. In Christ, we are given the nature that we 
need in order to know God and to love him with all of our heart. Our broken, corrupted nature has been restored now and is daily being restored as we're united to Christ. And now in Christ, we walk in the wisdom of the Spirit, avoiding folly and growing in practical righteousness every single day. So the key question for us this morning, here in the latter half of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, is this, am I trusting in Christ? First and foremost, am I trusting in Christ for my salvation, for the forgiveness of sins that I need, and for the renewal and the restoration of my nature so that I can actually grow in godliness and grow in Christ-likeness? But beyond that, am I trusting in Christ every single day in the midst of my circumstances? Am I living in the fear of God by obeying his commandments and avoiding folly? And am I living in light of my new nature in the power of the Holy Spirit? These are the things that we have to attend to this morning. These are the things that we need to give ourselves to this morning. A renewed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or to again put it in the language of Solomon here in Ecclesiastes, a renewed fear of the Lord, trusting him in all of our circumstances and walking in the wisdom that he supplies in the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for your holy word. Lord, we're so thankful that even as we come to passages like this that do have challenging texts and levels of confusion to them, we're so thankful that the overall message of every passage, and even more significantly, the overall message of the Bible is so crystal clear. It's a message of redemption. It's a message of healing. It's a message of your love. It's a message that tells us that although we were created upright, men and women created as image bearers, that through our own sinfulness, we have corrupted our nature. Through our own sinfulness, we have alienated ourselves from you and true life, because true life can only be experienced when we're connected to the source of life, you, Lord. Lord, the message of the scriptures continues and tells us that despite our sin and despite our fall, that you love us so much that you didn't leave us in this condition. You love us so much that you've not only given us your law, but you've given us your son and you've given us the Holy Spirit. First, through the Son, we have our sins forgiven through his work on the cross, where Jesus died in our place, bearing the penalty for our sins, experiencing the wrath of God for sin on our behalf. And after dying there on that cross, and dying the death that we deserve to die, he rose again from the grave, triumphing over both sin and death, and now offering eternal life to all who would believe in him. And Lord, we're so thankful that after Christ ascended to be seated at your right hand, that you sent the Spirit to dwell in our hearts, to guide us into all truth, to lead us on the path of wisdom, to comfort us in times of difficulty. And Lord, we pray that all of us would renew our faith in you, that all of us would walk in the Spirit, that we would abide in Christ, and that we would find our lives blessed as a result of it. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, church. Happy Lord's Day.